welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Exodus chapter 17 in your Bibles is where we will be this morning. Exodus chapter 17. My uh, siblings who are here today, Joel and Jaron and Sis, there's more Weilers here now than any other part of the world. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. It's a takeover. But they'll remember, they'll remember some of these sites in uh, this first part here because it was prob- I was probably 10 or 12 and some of you, well, all of you here today are younger than I am. My siblings, anyways, um, may remember some of this, but uh, we got to go to uh, the Northeast, specifically Boston, and see several of the historical things in Boston, and uh, got to go to, go ahead and put that up there, Fenway Park for a game, the iconic green monster. Anybody been there? Oh, well, two, three. We got three people, the iconic green monster there in, in left field, and got to watch a game. That was pretty cool. Went to Lexington and Concord where the first shots are fired for the, uh, the American Revolutionary War, right? This is the bridge in Concord where the, the Minutemen held their ground against the, the advancing redcoats, right? Saw that and the historical aspect of all that. Got to board the Mayflower II, which is a replica of the Mayflower, which is what the pilgrims came across on there in 1620. And then we were also able to go to Plymouth. Plymouth is where the the pilgrims landed there. And there's a thing there known as Plymouth Rock, marking the spot where the pilgrims landed. And it's the Plymouth Rock is held in this Colosseum-like structure. And you get there and you look at, you see this from the outside and it's amazing and you're expecting something great and then you see Plymouth Rock. (laughs) It's kind of a letdown. If you can see there in the picture, just off to the side, on the right side there, it says 1620 engraved in it. But this is Plymouth Rock marking the spot. And I look at it, I'm like, "Eh, they could have probably picked a better rock, no? Kind of ordinary. Kind of of just just a normal rock like any other rock, nothing too special. Well, today in Exodus chapter 17, we talk about a rock that is unlike any other rock. In your Bibles, Exodus 17, this rock is completely different. This rock, there's never been another one like it. And never will be. Let's read together the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 17. I want you to keep in mind where we are in the story here. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt. God has brought them through the Passover out of Egypt through the Exodus. They've crossed over the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies have been destroyed. They've moved through now. They've gotten the bread from heaven. That's in chapter 16. The manna that they received, the quails that came to feed them. And they come to chapter 17 here in the story, and they run into some problems, as they have the whole time. Let's read the first seven verses together. It says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. 
So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings come to this place called Rephidim. That's in verse 1. It Notice that they were led there by the Lord. They weren't just wandering on their own. They weren't just doing their own thing. God was leading them step by step, place by place, to teach them something, to lead them through, to something and through something, as, as they had the whole time. And they come to Rephidim. The word Rephidim means resting place. But it also says that here at Rephidim, they had no water to drink. How restful is a resting place with no water? It'd be like going to a restaurant with no food. Right? You show up and you expect rest, you expect peace, and there's no water. You show up at a restaurant, you expect great food, and they say we have no food. So not a very good resting place if there is no water, and the people realize that. And notice what it says in verse 2, the people contended with Moses. said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me, and not just with him, but notice what he says, why do you tempt the Lord? This is the habit of the children of Israel. Every time they come to a a difficult situation, they complain. Even though God has repeatedly, over and over, he has proved that he is trustworthy. They came to the Red Sea, he parts the Red Sea, they walk across. Pharaoh's armies are chasing after him, he he destroys them. They come there and they, they don't have any bread to eat, he gives them bread. One time earlier, they came across water, it was bitter, they couldn't drink it, so he tossed a, a, a branch in the water and made it sweet. God has always provided them. And here they contend with him because that's what they do. They complain. In chapter 16, it uses the word uh, to complain or to grumble. And it really means more than just that. It's more of an open rebellion against God. Not just a little bit of, you know, in the background. But a God, why? We don't like what we're doing and we're going to overthrow you. To Moses. This time they come in chapter 17 and they say, give us water to drink. They demanded that God provide for them. We would call that presuming on God's goodness, no? It's a dangerous thing to presume on God's goodness. Why? Because when you presume upon God's goodness, you act as if you deserve it. Does anybody deserve God's goodness? No, not a one of us. They come and they say they developed almost an entitlement mentality. Give us water to drink. Not a request, but a demand. 
And here's how far they've gone. Moses says, verse 4, at the end, he says to God, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. That's rough. Moses put up with a lot in his leading of the children of Israel. And here they are about done with him, and they say their intense rebellion has taken them to this murderous extent that they're willing to stone Moses, their God-appointed leader. Put yourself in the position of Moses or in the position of God in this instance. What would your response be? You know what mine would be? I'll tell you. You think you're going to stone me? Not if I stone you first. Right? Is that not our natural reaction? Kind of fight fire with fire? God, take them out. I'm done with them. Or let me take them out. Let me throw the stones. We're going to take care of this. That would, we would give them what they deserve. That, that would be our mindset in our human nature, would it not? But Moses, as we learn in Numbers chapter 12, it says that Moses is the meekest man who ever lived. And he doesn't respond that way. He's put up with so much this whole time, yet he doesn't respond that way. What does he do in verse 4? He goes to God. It says, so Moses cried out to the Lord. Good move, Moses. Good move. The psalmist said in Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. How does God respond? If we can, for a moment, you know, process this, God's people again, once again, coming, contending with him, rebelling against him, complaining, grumbling about everything he's done for them. They're still not satisfied. How does God respond in this? Verses 5 and 6, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders, take the rod which you struck the river. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. You will strike the the rock and water will come out of it. God responds with grace and with mercy. Grace is undeserved goodness. Mercy is unreceived punishment. And God gives them both here. Repeatedly, Israel proves they deserve none of God's goodness, but yet God gives it to them. Does that sound like anybody else you know? I can't think of anybody. It's every one of us. Repeatedly, never once deserving the goodness of God, and yet he still, I think of Ephesians 2, all these things, your children of disobedience, you're dead in your sins, but God, who is rich in mercy. That's the greatness of God to us, not deserving any of it. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, it tells us this. It says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Think about that verse in the context of Exodus 17. By the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Though we should be. His compassions do not fail. Though we always do. His mercy and compassions are new every morning. That's a blessing because you know what? I use up the supply every day. If they weren't new in the morning, it'd be rough. If there wasn't another fresh supply of God's mercy and grace, it would be rough. Because every day I need more today of what sustained me yesterday. God's almighty good hand. There's a 
there's a, a little statement in the movie Anne of Green Gables. I, d I, I watched Anne of Green Gables probably a hundred times growing up, not because I'm weird, but because I have a sister. And she practically memorized the whole movie. And there's a part in there where Anne is talking to his, her, her teacher. And the teacher says, tomorrow is a new day with no mistakes in it yet. And I said, it's a good thing. I think the children of Israel would rephrase that. Tomorrow is a new day with more opportunities to complain. And we would do the same thing, right? Which is why tomorrow it's coming and we, need, we, we better hope his mercies are new every morning. Because we need it for tomorrow just like we needed it for today. His mercies, that's, that's a powerful verse, those two verses there. They are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of our God. That he just doesn't just leave us to what we deserve. Now I want to ask a question here and answer a question. Because the Israelites kind of accuse God of something here. And here's the question. Could God wipe out Israel as they deserve because of their rebellion? Well, the answer is yes and no. In this sense. Yes, he could because God can do as he pleases. God can do what he wants to do. But he's also given them promises. And he's told them what? I will bring you into the land. And if we're, God were to wipe them out, it would make Israel's accusations of God true. Because remember, they've said several times, you just brought us out in the wilderness to die. And then God kills them off. And their accusation, in some sense, was true. So it would undermine his promises. So God's response is not to wipe them out as they deserve. Instead, he responds with grace and mercy. How, though? How does he show his grace and mercy? Grace and mercy, you know, that kind of a, a philosophical concept. But in what way, in what tangible way does God say, I am being gracious and merciful to you? Verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 17. Behold, I will stand, uh, sorry, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God's mercy and grace shows up in the fact that he gave them water. Something they didn't deserve. But I want you to notice two things here. Where are they? Verse 6 God says, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. Horeb, what is that? Horeb is the mountain of God. And this is not the first time Moses has been there. Do you know where Moses was in Exodus 3 when God called him? He was in Horeb, the mountain of God. And God calls Moses in Exodus 3, verse 1. It says he's in Horeb. He sees the burning bush. And God calls him to do this. And then in verse 12 of Exodus 3... One of the signs that God gave Moses or told him, you will know that I have called you to serve me because you will worship God on this mountain. You will go back to Egypt, lead the people out, and you'll come back here and worship God here. That's Exodus 17. So Moses in Exodus 17 has to be thinking, I've been here before, and one of the promises that God would lead me and guide me was that I would lead the people back here, and here it's being fulfilled. In the mountain of God, God is faithful to his promises to Moses. 
So that is where they are. They're in Horeb. Where is God? Verse 6. He says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. I will stand before you there on the rock. What did that look like? What did it look like for God to stand on the rock? Was he visible? I, I, I don't know. Was it the cloud of glory that, that we read about in Exodus and in, in the Pentateuch there and, and the, 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 the kind of glory of God that was present in some instances? Was it maybe the angel of the Lord? In Sunday school, we've talked about the angel of the Lord being a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who came down in visible form. And maybe it was, it was him. It was, it, was a, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus standing there on the rock. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I know this. If God says he's on the rock, I want to go to the rock. If God says, go meet me at the rock, I'm standing on the rock and I will provide for you, I want to be at the bottom of the rock, looking up at God. Psalm 61, the psalmist says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. In Psalm 18, it says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. If God is on the rock, meet me at the rock. That's where we'll be. Because we want to be in the presence of God where he will provide for his people as he's about to do right here on the rock. So Moses comes and he says, grab the rod of God. Remember what the rod of God is, that instrument in Moses' hand that God uses to bring judgment many of the times, but also protection and blessing. And God says, Moses, take the rod and strike the rock and water will come out for the people. I remember in college, one of my professors, I think it was Old Testament survey, and we went through this, you know, in a 50-minute class, we went through probably half of it talking about how big this rock was. By the end, I was like, I don't think it matters. It was a rock, it was big, and he hit it, right? So he hits the rock, and it says water comes rolling out of it. The first rock and roll in the Bible right there. There, He hits the rock, water comes rolling out of it. Bible humor, I'm sorry. But the water comes out and it takes care of the people. Their need was met. God provides for them in Horeb. The word Horeb, meaning the mountain of God, but it comes from the word, the root meaning to dry up or to be arid or a desert. So here they are in this desert place and God provides for them life-preserving living In Psalm 105, the psalmist records it for us in this way. And it goes back a little bit in the story. It says, he also brought them out with silver and gold. It's talking about the exodus from Egypt. And there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. The people were satisfied with the goodness of God. In the desert of life, in an actual desert, without water, God provides for them exactly what they need. Isn't that incredible? The miraculous power of God. Well, hold on. We're just getting started. 
Take your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, the Apostle Paul here is warning the Corinthians about falling away from the faith. And he says that in, in the end of chapter 9, he says how we need to strive for, for the crown. You don't want to become disqualified. And then verse 5 and 6, he says, with most of them, this is talking about the people in Israel, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So he's warning them, don't fall away from the truth. Don't follow what the Israelites did. They had all these blessings of God. Protection at the Red Sea, bread from heaven, water from the rock, all these evidences of God's goodness. And they fell away. Don't be that person. Now look at verse 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is Paul recapping Israel's history. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, talking about the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. What? That rock was Christ. It says they drank, it's talking about Israel's history, and you can see the pattern of the Exodus there, verses 1 through 3. And then you come to this Exodus 17, that's what he's referring to in verse 4. That rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul gives us great insight back into Exodus 17. And he says what God did there at the rock wasn't just a cool miracle to get water out of a rock. It was a picture of the spiritual reality that is Christ. It was to be a foreshadowing or a type of Christ. That what we see that happened here with water flowing from the rock, that rock was whom? It was Christ. As, as my second son Elijah would say, that's credible. That's credible. The rock that Moses pointed to, the rock that Moses struck, excuse me, pointed to the spiritual reality that is Christ. You say, well, in what ways? Connect the dots for me. There's four ways specifically that the rock points to Christ. Number one, like the rock, Christ was struck with divine judgment. Moses took the rod of God in his hand. The same rod that brought the plagues on to, to the Egyptians. The same rod with which the waters came crashing down onto the Egyptians when they were crossing the Red Sea. It was a picture of judgment at times. And he takes that rod, that rod of judgment, and he strikes the rock with the judgment of God. Who else was struck with the judgment of God on our behalf? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God. And afflicted. Talking about Christ. That like the rock was struck in Moses' day. Christ in his death 
was struck with the judgment of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath. Secondly, like the rock, Christ was struck when the people should have been. Who was the one, in Exodus 17, who were the people complaining? Israel. Who were about to stone stone Moses? Israelites. Who deserved striking? The Israelites. But what did Moses, Moses strike? Struck the rock instead. What a picture of substitutionary atonement. The substitution by which Christ, that rock was Christ, where Christ is struck on our behalf. And that's where the next verse is in Isaiah 53. That's where they go. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of whom? All of us. Whose transgressions? Whose iniquities? Whose chastisement? Yet who was struck? The rock was struck. Like the rock, Christ was struck when the people should have been struck. Christ stepped in as our substitute and took the striking that was coming from God because of the wrath that had to be meted out. The wrath that we deserved. And Christ took it. The people, Moses deserves to take his staff and go whack every single one of the Israelites. But God says, no, Moses, in my mercy and grace, go strike the rock instead. That's substitutionary atonement. Number three, like the rock, Christ flows with the water of life. Like the rock, Christ flows with the water of life. Think about it. In Exodus 17, how long would the Israelites last without water? Not long. In a hot, arid climate, not very long at all. I'm thirsty now. It wouldn't last long. It can't last long without water. Water sustains life. Without it, we shrivel up and we're gone. In John 19, 34, when Jesus was on the cross, it says they pierced his side. And out of him came what? Water and blood. The blood that covers our sins and the water, the living water that imparts life. Remember our scripture reading earlier? Jesus shows up at the the well there in Samaria talking to this woman. Says, ma'am, can I have a drink? They have this, this back and forth. Why are you asking me that? And Jesus says, if you knew who I was, the role would be reversed. You would be asking me for water. And he says, the water that I give will be a fountain. If you drink of the water that I give, it will be a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. The people drank the water in, from, the, from the rock in the desert and it satisfied their thirst. We drink from the living water that is Christ and it forever satisfies our spiritual thirst. We don't have to go anywhere else. Nothing else satisfies like Christ does. He is the one. In the wilderness, though, the Israelites, they get thirsty again. Because the water that came from the rock, though picturing Christ, was still physical water. You drink, you're fine, but you get thirsty again. The same thing happens again. Look in your Bibles, Numbers chapter 20. 
Same idea here happens again. Numbers 20, the first several verses. Let's read these together. Numbers 20. It's a little further in their wilderness wanderings. Numbers 20, verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. Here we go again. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. There's a positive outlook on life. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Moses wishes he had a nickel for every time they said that. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly, I would leave them too, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. You and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. History repeating itself. You see it here? They're, they're thirsty. They need water. Moses goes to God. God says, Take the rod. Well, hold on a second. Verse 8. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation And they're animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Sounds like Moses is a little fed up at this point, doesn't it? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. Another picture of the mercy and loving kindness of God. Even though Moses did not obey, God still provided. But this is interesting here because this time, same scenario. God tells Moses, don't strike the rock. Speak to the rock. Why? 1 Corinthians 10 told us that that rock was whom? Christ. Like the rock, Christ only needs to be struck once. Like the rock, Christ only needs to be struck once. And since the rock was a picture of Christ, and the striking of the rock was a picture of Christ's substitutionary atonement, another strike is not needed. This time, God tells Moses, speak to the rock. And it shows for us that the the, the one-time striking of Christ is sufficient for all who will be saved. Hebrews tells us this in chapter 9 and chapter 10. 9.28 it says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 10.10-14 We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So watch this though. The rock has been struck. Why speak to the rock? Why was Moses commanded this time to speak to the rock? Christ, the rock, was struck on our behalf so that we might come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God struck Christ so that we could speak to God. Do you see it? 
He struck Christ so that we would have access to God to speak to him, to have fellowship and harmony with God. That rock was Christ. Peter says in in his epistle, he says that to those who do not believe, Jesus is also a rock, but he calls him a stone of stumbling. He says Jesus is, to those who don't believe, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that will be rejected. But to those who believe in Jesus, Jesus is the living stone. He is chosen by God and he is precious. See the difference? You're not tripping over him. You want him there. He is, Ephesians 2 says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church and the one upon whom our faith rests. In Psalm 18, verse 46, the psalmist says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. A songwriter put it in these words for us. He said, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That rock, the rock of our salvation, that rock is Christ. Christ.